welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 10th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. And welcome to another episode of SGEMPEDS. The title of today's episode is... I can choose from all the head injury prediction tools out there. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Joe Mullally, who is a pediatric trainee in the Welsh Pediatric Training Program. He is interested in pediatric emergency medicine, and he is a student in the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Master's Program through Queen Mary University in London in collaboration with that awesome Don't Forget the Bubbles team. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Now, Joe, I understand that you are actually in the midst of a career pivot, and you're no longer just interested in pediatric emergency medicine. So can you tell us what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, that's right. Um, In a couple of months' time, I'll be starting on my subspecialty training in pediatric emergency medicine, which lasts for a couple of years here in the UK, where you qualify as a consultant in pediatric emergency medicine at the end of it. Well, congratulations, Joe. We are always, always very excited to have someone else join the community of pediatric emergency medicine and help us take care of these kids. Now, I do want to give our listeners a little bit of background here. We actually did this critical appraisal in one of our tutorials for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Master's Program. And I remember you channeling so much good skeptical energy during that session. And maybe, dare I say, some of that reviewer number two energy as well. Yeah, I'd say that was about fair. I think um, I was post night shift, so maybe I was a little grumpier than I should have been in appraising the paper. But yeah, I'd, I'd say that it was fair that I channeled that reviewer to energy. My understanding is this time you were actually taking time out of your vacation to record with us. So I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. All right, Joe, let's get started. Let's jump into the case. What kind of case have you brought for us? The case I've brought is a seven-year-old girl presenting to the emergency department after she was playing on the playground and she fell from a large play structure. It was about a metre tall. She didn't have any loss of consciousness. However, she's complaining of a headache and has vomited twice. Her GCS when she presented was 14 and her physical exam demonstrating bruising on her occiput, but there weren't any other concerning findings. The trainee that you're working with asks, do you think she needs a CT scan for her head? Now, children have big heads, and that's proportionally to their body compared to adults, which makes them more at risk of traumatic brain injury. We use computerized tomography, or CT, in the emergency department to diagnose TBI. Yeah, but we're always trying to balance the potential harms and benefits in medicine. A CT scan does mean that we're irradiating the paediatric brain, which increases the risk of leukemias and brain cancers later on in life. Thankfully, clinically important intracranial injuries are really rare in kids. So should we be CT scanning children with only minor head injuries? Now, the SGEM has covered pediatric concussions and head imaging on SGEM 112 and the Nexus 2 pediatric head CT decision instrument on SGEM 225. Today, we're talking about three other popular clinical decision rules, PCARN, CATCH, or the Canadian Assessment of Tomography for Childhood Head Injury, 
and Chalice, which is the children's head injury algorithm for the prediction of important clinical events. Boy, am I glad we have those acronyms. Now, we've left links to those rules in our show notes, but I also want to know, how do these rules compare to physician judgment? So, Joe, what's the clinical question we're trying to answer today? So today, we're trying to answer what the diagnostic accuracy of clinical decision rules are and how it compares to physician judgment in identifying clinically important traumatic brain injuries in kids with minor head injuries. And what's our reference? The paper we're looking at is Easter et al.'s comparison of PECAN, CATCH and CHALICE rules of children with minor head injuries, a prospective cohort study published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2014. Okay, let's jump into our PICO questions. First off, what is the population they were looking at? They were looking at children who presented with head injuries to a level two pediatric trauma center in the United States between 2012 and 2013. These children had to have history of signs of blunt injury to the head, GCSE scores equal to or greater than 13, injury within the previous 24 hours prior to presentation, or if the physician was concerned about the potential for traumatic brain injury. And who was excluded? They excluded children with heightened traumatic brain injury risk. For example, those with a GCS less than 13, brain tumors, shunts, or if they had bleeding disorders or were taking anticoagulant medications, or if they presented too late, over 24 hours after the injury. What was their intervention? The intervention was CT versus no CT. And the comparison? And they compared the PECAN, Chalice and Catch tools with physician judgment and the physician's actual practice. All right, let's talk about the outcomes, Joe. What was the primary outcome they were looking at? They looked at clinically important traumatic brain injury. They defined that as death from traumatic brain injury, the need for neurosurgery, or the need for intubation greater than 24 hours for traumatic brain injury, hospital admission greater than two nights, and this was the same as the outcomes for the original PCAN study. And what about their secondary outcomes? The secondary outcomes were whether they detected the clinically evident traumatic brain injury on the scan or whether the traumatic brain injury required some form of neurosurgery, such as a craniotomy or a bolt to monitor the pressure, or if they needed intubation to help control that raised intracranial pressure. What type of study was this? This was a single centre prospective cohort study. And can you give us the author's conclusions? They concluded that of the five modalities they described, PECAN, CATCH, CHALICE, physician judgment and practice, only physician practice and the PECAN identified all the clinically important traumatic brain injuries, with PECAN being slightly more specific. Chalice was incompletely sensitive, but the most specific of all the rules. Catch was incompletely sensitive and had the poorest specificity of all modalities. And let's move on to our quality checklist. First question, did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes, I think they did. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yes, I'd agree that it was. Do you think the exposure was accurately measured to minimize bias? I'm less sure about that because they included physician suspicion for dramatic brain injury, which is quite a subjective measure. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Again, it's difficult to say because a large proportion of the patients did not have a CT. 
have the authors identified all important confounding factors? I think they've made a really good effort in that. Do you think the follow-up of subjects was complete enough? Yes, I think it was good. How precise are these results? I think they're fairly precise. They've made a reasonable effort into getting appropriate statistics in place. Do you believe the results? Yeah, I do. Do you think the results can be applied to the local population? Again, I'm less sure about this because it was one site in the US. Obviously, my practice is outside of the US, so it's less certain whether I can apply this to the children I'm seeing. Do you think the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, it complements the evidence base quite nicely. And our last question is about the funding of the study. Were there any conflicts of interest? There weren't any declared financial conflicts of interest. All right, well, let's talk about the results then. During this study period, 1,526 children with head injury presented to the emergency department. They enrolled about 70% of those children. The enrolled group had a median age of 6.1 years and 64% were male. 95% of those children presented with a GCS of 15. Now, in comparison, the non-enrolled group had a median age of 5 years, 58% were male, and 99 had a GCS of 15. So in summary, the enrolled group was just a little bit older, with slightly higher proportion being male, and a bit fewer having a GCS of 15. Now, they did end up excluding another 53 patients, mostly because they presented greater than 24 hours from the time of injury, ending up with a total of 1,009 children included in the study. Joe, what were the key results? The key results are that only the PECAN clinical decision rule and physician practice had 100% sensitivity for detecting clinically important traumatic brain injuries. And we'll include a table in the show notes that give the sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative likelihood ratios of all of these five methods. So let's break it down just a little bit more, Joe. Tell us how many kids actually had injuries seen on imaging or clinically important TBI. So yeah, 52 children, which is 5% of the total study population, had injuries that were detectable on a CT. 21 of those children, which is about 2%, had a clinically important traumatic brain injury that was detected on these scans. The most common injuries were skull fractures, but there were a few subarachnoid and subdural hemorrhages as well. Only four, which is 0.4% of the entire study population, required any neurosurgical intervention. Wow. So very few children with clinically significant TBI and even fewer that actually required neurosurgical intervention. All right, Joe, I hope you are ready because it is time for my favorite section. It's time to talk nerdy. And nerdy point number one is about selection bias. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, This study had some inclusion criteria that may have led to some selection bias. Specifically, Physician concern for potential traumatic brain injury is extremely subjective. They also excluded anyone who wasn't seen within 24 hours with the reasoning that the risk of clinically important traumatic brain injury decreases with time. Yeah, and although this may appear appropriate, I think there are probably a few of us who have seen a child in the ED who presented greater than 24 hours from head injury. 
Maybe these families tried to wait it out after initial injury to avoid that ED visit, but the child continued to have persistent symptoms. So what do you do if there is physician concern for TBI in those circumstances? It's unclear how these exclusion criteria may have impacted the study. Our second nerdy point is about verification bias. Verification bias occurs when only a proportion of the study's participants receive confirmation of the diagnosis by reference standard test, in which case is a CT scan. Now, approximately half of the patients were discharged after initial evaluation. A third of patients were observed for a median of three hours, and the remainder underwent CT scan. Now, practically, we're not arguing that every single patient in the study should have received a CT scan. The authors resorted to other methods to follow up with the patients, and I think it's also important to realize that just because something may be radiologically significant does not necessarily mean that it is clinically significant. In this study, they noted 5% of patients who had injuries present on CT, but only 2% had clinically significant TBI. So bear with me here. Uh, I'm going to invent maybe another class of outcomes, and this might appeal to some of our listeners down under, but uh, how about we call these radiological-oriented outcomes or ruse? Yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea at all. Follow-up was obtained for 87% of the patients who didn't undergo CT. 57% of those who were evaluated by physician and 43% were evaluated over the phone. The team also looked at trauma registries and quality improvement reports to see if any patients had died. This is kind of imperfect. Maybe the patient saw care at an institution outside of the health system they originally presented to. And for more information on understanding the direction of bias in diagnostic studies, we suggest that you read the classic paper by Cohn et al. in 2013 that we'll link in our show notes. And there's also the new book by Dr. Jesse Pines on clinical decision rules, and he was interviewed on SGEM Extra in June. Our third nerdy point is about inter-rater reliability. Now, the authors looked at agreement amongst physicians on the study variables. They considered a kappa value of greater than 0.5 to be acceptable. There are other sources that suggest a different interpretation. Values less than or equal to zero indicate no agreement. Values 0.01 to 0.2 indicate none to slight agreement. 0.21 to 0.4 is fair. 0.41 to 0.6 as moderate, and 0.61 to 0.8 as substantial. And then if you manage to hit the 0.81 to 1, that is an almost perfect agreement. Now, most of these variables and their associated kappa values are presented in Appendix 2. They looked at 180 observations total, and most variables have actually really good agreement. Now, they do mention that worsening headache and intoxication have the lowest kappas of 0.49 and 0.43, respectively, but they didn't really discuss why that was the case in the rest of their paper. Yeah, there's another kappa value that I think is worth highlighting here as well. It's the GCS interrater reliability, which had a kappa value of 0.65. We know from previous studies that agreement amongst physicians on GCS scores is fairly variable. In children, there's modification to these scores based on the age, 
which also poses additional challenges. This potentially impacts the patients who were included in the study. For example, were there any patients who were inappropriately excluded or inappropriately included if there was variation in how their initial GCS was determined amongst different physicians? Oh, fantastic question. It almost goes right back to nerdy point number one about selection bias. All right, let's not, let's not backtrack here. Let's keep moving forward here. Nerdy point number four is about clinician judgment. So I really like the fact that they included clinician judgment in their study because I think it's such an important question to ask whenever we see this clinical decision rule or tool, you know, is this thing actually better than clinical gestalt? Now, that being said, I think there is a bit of confounding at play here because the authors report that physicians were trained on the data collection instrument. After assessing the patient, but before obtaining results of testing, they recorded the presence of predictor variables. So is it possible that completing this data collection instrument with all of the predictor variables influenced their decision because it reminded or cued them to what the predictor variables were that were significant? I mean, it's interesting that you should mention that because it was also interesting to see that there was a discrepancy between what the physicians estimated versus what they actually did in practice. Their estimates had a really, really good sensitivity at 95%. However, the practice had a better sensitivity of 100%. What that means in practice is that they CT'd more children compared to what they estimated. We're not sure why that is. It could be to do with what you mentioned. It could be that they were practicing more defensively. It's also interesting to note that the specificity of the physician estimate was better than the physician practice. Okay, our last and final nerdy point here is about these clinical decision rules. Now, I think some people may think I'm being a bit too particular here, but I really just don't like seeing clinical decision rule. And it's that rule part. It just feels so strict. Like if you check off these boxes, then you should or should not perform a particular intervention. Yeah. We know that evidence-based medicine has three pillars, clinical judgment, scientific literature, and the patient or family values and preferences. There's a lot of room here for some shared decision-making. Oh my gosh, Joe. Hearing that come from someone other than me or Ken, it just feels feels so good. So how about we just call these tools instead. You know, they're there to help guide decision-making, but they really should not be taken as dogma. Okay, Joe. So now that we've finished our nerdy talk, can you comment on the author's conclusions compared to the SGM conclusion? We agree with the author's conclusions. However, it might be difficult to generalize the findings of this single institution study with a low prevalence of clinically important traumatic brain injuries. And can you give us the SGEM bottom line? I think the bottom line here is that clinical decision tools should be used in conjunction with clinical judgment and the parents' or caregivers' preferences to determine the need for CT scans in children with mild traumatic brain injuries. And can you resolve that case for us? What did we end up doing for that poor child? So I think that we'd be likely to tell the parents that the patient has sustained a mild traumatic brain injury and that we need to discuss the option of whether we go 
for a CT scan versus watching them closely in the emergency department. The family would then decide that it would give them more peace of mind if we did a CT. So a CT head is what we did, and it didn't demonstrate any evidence of any skull fractures or intracranial bleeds. We let the family know about the signs and symptoms of concussion before they left the emergency department, and then we let them go home. All right, Joe. So we talked a lot, but how are you going to apply the results of this study to your practice? What are you currently using to help you determine whether or not you should head CT a child with mild traumatic brain injury? So I currently work in a system where we utilize Chalice, and I need to make sure that I make sensible decisions that are in line with the accepted decision-making tools that we use. However, The results of the study mean that I'm more confident that these tools are a baseline that inform my clinical decision-making rather than out-and-out blanket rules. We discussed earlier the problems with having blanket rules rather than informed practice using the pillars of evidence-based medicine. If it comes to defending these decisions that I make, I can feel confident that the above paper supports my clinical acumen and judgment and supports me in practicing thinking medicine which I think is key to getting better outcomes for my patients. If all we needed to do was follow a guideline, then why do we bother with all of this learning? Absolutely well put. And I mean, the longer I work and the more that I learn, the more I realize how much more I don't know and how much more I have to learn. So acknowledging that uncertainty, being humble about that, being transparent and being candid with the families. And sharing that decision-making, I think, has never has never gone wrong for me. All right, Joe, what are we going to tell the patient? We should tell the parents that the child has likely sustained a mild head injury, but I can completely understand why they're concerned. We've not found any concerning findings on our physical examination, and we can potentially do one of two things. We can observe her in the emergency department for a few hours. If she stays well, we can let her go home with some head injury advice, knowing full well when they can come back. If she becomes symptomatic, though, we can make the decision to go ahead and get a CT. Alternatively, we could perform the CT right now. However, we should definitely recognise that although a CT head can tell us whether there is or isn't a skull fracture, it does expose her to some radiation. We can then discuss which options the parent would prefer. Nicely tied up, Joe. Thank you very much for joining us on SGMPEDS. Thank you very much for having me. And before we go, can you give us the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.